Welcome to the Transparency Project on the Inside Lens Network, with programming dedicated to bringing attention to unsolved homicides and suspicious deaths. If you have a question or comment for today's guest, please call in at 646-478-0982. My name is Denny Griffin, and my co-host is Delilah Jones of ImaginePublicity.com. Good morning, Delilah. Good morning, Denny. Um, I just want to take a minute to let our listeners know about some of the other programming that we have on the Inside Lens Network. Um, we've been podcasting so long it wasn't even called podcasting back in the day, but we have over 700 episodes for people to listen to in several different genres. A lot of them are crime related or victim service related. So we're very proud of those. And some of the podcasts that we have on the Inside Lens Network will highlight criminal cases and some which are still open investigations like the one that we're going to be talking with today. But our intent is to allow families to present their information for consideration by the listeners. We just want you to know that our podcast and our hosts in no way represent our guests. We, don't, we cannot claim that we're going to solve your case, uh, nor do we wish to jeopardize any open investigations. Our, our guests present their own information, and while we might suggest some resources and assistance, um, we... You know, we just aren't liable for their subsequent actions and what they do. So that's out of the way. And this is, you know, this case, Denny, uh, I don't even I don't even have words. You know, I really don't. I know that you highlighted this case several years ago on, I believe, the Crime Wire podcast. Am I correct? You are correct. It was August of 2010, in fact. Great. Well, it's good to revisit this and see if there's some positive updates and see if we can't get a little more noise going on. Absolutely, Dee. And uh, as you you mentioned, uh, we had this uh, case profiled back in August of 1990, or excuse me, 2010, which was the 20th anniversary of the murders of Andrew, Andy Atkinson, and Cheryl Henry. And they were viciously murdered in Houston, Texas. The killings were subsequently dubbed the Lover's Lane Murders. Now, 28 years later, their killer or killers remain unidentified and at large. Joining us to talk about the status of the police investigation of Randy's father, Garland Atkinson, and Gene Cervantes of Citizens Against Homicide. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Good. How are you? Thank you, Fine, Garland. Thank you. Hi, Gene. Uh, my buddy, Gene. Uh, Gene and Denny. Good talking with both of you. <laughs> uh, as as I mentioned, this this case goes back to 1990, and then uh, we did the, uh, profiled it on the 20th anniversary in 2010. For, for those who did not hear that particular broadcast in 2010, Garland, perhaps you could explain uh, – the the situation, what took place on August 22nd of 1990. Yes, Denny. Uh, Originally, I'm from North Carolina, and I moved to Houston in 77. And uh, Andy, at that time in the fourth grade, he came down here with me. But he was raised by his grandmother 
and great-grandmother and his mother and his grandmother on his mother's side. I mean, he had family everywhere, and he did not want to, to really stay with me in Texas. So he continued living in North Carolina. I would see him. He would come down once he got, you know, 16 and above. I put him on the train, or either he'd drive down when he was 17 and 18. But he'd come down and visit me during the summer. And I kept trying to get him to come down to Houston. But, you know, all of his friends went to the same school. And uh, whatever you want to do, something. So in early June of 1990, he called me one day. And he said, Dad, I'm on my way to Texas. And I thought he was kidding, you know. I said, oh, yeah, right, okay. Well, he was. And about the second week of June, he arrived down here, was going to start UH in September, and got a job at Gold's Gym out on 45 South, south of Houston. And uh, he was hanging out at a couple of places here, kids his same age, Sam's Boat, Yucatan Liquor Stand. And he had met Cheryl, and this was in probably early to mid-August because they hadn't been seeing each other but maybe three weeks, a month tops. I never got the pleasure of even meeting her. I was going to that coming weekend. But anyway, they go out on a date, August the 22nd. They go by Bayou Mamas, which is a little sports bar grill. And uh, Shane, which was Cheryl's younger sister, was with them. And uh, Andy and Cheryl decided to leave. They're going to ride around, you know, maybe look at southwest side of Houston. And they ended up on Enclave Parkway, which was a pretty upper-middle-class area at that time. And they had a huge Cisco food system corporate office, I guess, a huge open field, a little copse of trees. And the first street to the left was a cul-de-sac. And uh, that's where they went. Well, early early August 23rd, my mother called me, and she said, Son, my mother had moved down here as well, a care nurse, and she said, Andy didn't come home last night. I said, Mom, he's 21. His girlfriend, I know, is at least 21. She was 22. had just turned 22. I said, maybe they went down to Galveston, you know. Don't worry about it. You never think that anything this tragic can happen to you. I mean, that's just not a train of thought that anyone has, but it can happen to anyone, Denny. And... uh Later that afternoon or early evening, I guess 8.30 or 9 o'clock, my mother called me again, and she said, uh, Garland, they found Andy's car. And with just that sentence, it was like, you know, a horse had kicked me in the stomach, and I'm saying, where, what? And she told me where it was, and that was maybe about 10 or 12 miles from where I was living. And I drove out there in the cul-de-sac, and Andy's car was parked there, Cheryl's family had arrived, and I'd never met them. I didn't want to get into their grief, and I'm I'm right there looking what's going on. There was blood on the passenger side of Andy's car and one of her shoes, and the car was turned on accessory like they'd been listening to the CD. Andy had been hitting golf balls because they had found golf balls that they said was in the direction of Cheryl's body. Maybe, but I think that was just a coincidence. But as I'm there, the mosquitoes were so bad, you would turn your, your arms would turn black. And I see these police out in the middle of that field, and they stop, and they're shining their light down. Well, I head that way. 
And when I get about halfway there, one of the officers turns around. And he said, sir, stay right there. Do not come any closer. It's a crime scene. And I just kept right on going. That's my son's car. And he came and restrained me, and he said, you cannot go over here. I said, that's my son's car parked up here. My name is Garland Atkinson. He said, it's not your son, it's the girl. They had found her in the middle of the field where they brutally raped that young girl, never done anything to anyone, stabbed her 20-plus times, cut her throat. And they hadn't found Andy. And the little copse of trees that separate like a little stream, I walked through that copse of trees, Danny, Gene, and y'all heard me talk about it before. Two or three times, I seen nothing. And they called off the search. The HPD officer that responded to the call about the missing couple and that car, he asked if he could be the one that stayed there and guarded the crime scene until morning where they could come back out there for a more thorough search because they hadn't found Andy. And so... uh, I go home, and I guess right right after daybreak, that same HPD officer that responded to the call, he's the one that found Andy tied to a tree, sitting down, with his throat uh, cut so bad, I mean, it was uh, almost decapitated. And uh, I had to walk by that, that tree. I had to have but maybe I was not supposed to see it. And uh, they had, they had, you know, they they pulled everybody that everybody, Andy had been down here less than two months. He didn't even know anybody. And uh, they've got people they questioned and it goes absolutely dormant. Nothing happens. And they put a cold, cold case squad on it in 2007, I believe. And so they looked at me uh, being uh, in the business I was in, which at that time, gentlemen clubs. And uh, they said, well, let's see if, uh, if maybe anything happened to the gentlemen's club back during that time. Sure enough, two months before Andy and Cheryl were killed, there was a dancer that worked at a club here in Houston. And she left and went home, stopped by Taco Bell, Lived in a studio. She goes in downstairs to eat. Well, when she goes upstairs to her bedroom, there's a guy up there with a stocking mask, terrorizes her, rapes her, but doesn't harm her, other than just scared her to death and brutally raped her, of course. But no murder, no, no nothing. Well, they said, well, let's see if a rape kit. So they go to Harris County uh, Sheriff's Office. Sure enough, there's a rape kit. And sure enough, it was a 100% DNA match. Whoever had raped the girl from the club here in Houston is the same one that raped Cheryl, which meant he was there. Whether he was a murderer or not, he was present because I've had some of the detectives, which were not on really good terms, uh, you know, try to convince me it was one guy. No, you're not going to control two adults. And one, although he wasn't that tall, he was sturdy. You're, one person is not going to control them. It's not going to happen. But they kept trying to push that in me. And we had, um, we had a meeting with the assistant police chief, George Bunick, back in 2011, I believe it was. Me and Cheryl Henry's father, Bob Henry, uh, retired commercial pilot. 
and we wanted to ask questions. The lead investigator at the end, Billy Belk, he, uh, he said, Garland, every homicide investigator gets that one perpetual thorn in the side, he said, and this case is mine. Whether I'm with the police department, and he was going to law school at that time, whether I'm with the police department or whatever I'm doing, I'll not rest until this case is resolved. Well, in 2000, he came to see me to bring me a contract from Crime Stoppers to put up a $50,000 reward because we were having a news conference, the DNA and all of that. And uh, the one suspect that I always had in my mind, he had told me he was the only one, by the way, that refused a blood sample back in 1990, and the police had no, no, they couldn't make him give up his blood, in other words. So this interview left town, and he came back, and Billy Belk told me, he said, Garland, he said, you know, fella came back into town, I got a judge to give me a court order to get a blood test. The DNA didn't match. And I guess he could see me being crestfallen, and he told me, this is the lead homicide investigator, he told me, Sir Garland, just because his DNA didn't match doesn't mean he wasn't there or didn't have something to do with it. He's just not the one that raped Cheryl. And until somebody proves me different, I'll believe that suspect. Well, when I met with the assistant police chief, George Bunick, with her, with Cheryl's father, Bob, we're sitting in the outer office, and here come Bunick into his office with the captain of homicide, the lieutenant of homicide, a couple of sergeants of homicide, the guy that was over the cold case squad at that time. Me and Bob felt like we were ambushed. The very people I'm going to, to complain and raise hell about had just walked in the door. But I'm a father that had my son brutally murdered, and I had to say what I had to say. And I told him everything that I had heard from the, the homicide investigator. And Bunick is looking at me like shocked with the information I gave him. And he looked around the table and asked all of them, did you all know this? Every one of them said no. How can you say that? How can you say that the lead homicide investigator that told me this, this is not rumor, this come out of your homicide investigator's mouth, and you, the captain, the lieutenant, the sergeants, you, you don't know anything about it. You never heard it. And this one, this one that I didn't know, he said, Mr. Atkinson, I'd like you to know one thing. We have spent more money and more man hours on this case than we have in the history of a murder in Houston. And I looked at him dumbfounded, and I said, and, and, <laughs> you're doing your job. That's what you get paid for. I didn't say that, but I just looked at him and said, and, you're talking about you spent a lot of money and you spent a lot of hours, but you're not doing anything? Well, a new cold case squad picked it up. In the last, last fall, the detective, the lady, Detective Shorten, uh, it's the first time in over 10 years, the first time in over 15 years I felt comfortable with an investigator. Well, they got money from the Houston Police Department, and they sent the DNA to a laboratory in Virginia to run it through whatever, see what it has. The second part of this DNA <clears throat> process is it can give you a composite of what that person, that, that 100% DNA, what he should look like now. Well, they've got familiar DNA, and I have been waiting, and I'm getting a little impatient now 
they have had that familiar DNA supposedly in this uh, laboratory in Virginia since, uh, I think, December or January. And I'm seeing every day, and my wife, Andy's mother, my first wife, we're still best friends. She lives in North Carolina. She's calling me, it seems like, once a week about another cold case is being solved with this familiar DNA. And that's where the case is standing right now. I'm, I'm waiting to hear from homicide, as I have did. This August the 23rd will be 28 years ago. Garland, thank thank you very much for that explanation. It's got to be difficult. It's a, it's a tough thing to talk about. And as Delilah said in the opening, uh, it, it's tough to find the words to, um, you know, to describe at least uh, my feelings toward this whole thing. Uh, let me uh, bring in Gene Cervantes. Gene, now you've been involved uh, – through uh, Citizens Against Homicide, you've been involved in this case for quite some time yourself. Um, could you give us a little background uh, for the listeners about what C- Citizens Against Homicide does and then how you got involved in the uh, Lover's Lane murders and, and what your experience has been so far since you've been involved with it? Uh, absolutely, Denny. What, um, um, back in... Uh, I believe it was November of 2009, Bob Henry reached out to our organization um, and asked for um, um, assistance in bringing uh, a much-needed attention to the uh, August 23rd, 1990 uh, double homicide. And I I made it clear to uh, Mr. Henry that Citizens Against Homicide does not do investigations, but we do intervene, um, I'm sorry, interact with investigators when, um, uh, when, when we do make contact with them. In this case, I uh, reached out to Houston Police Department, introduced myself as the uh, victim advocate for Bob Henry. Uh, I hadn't talked to Garland at that time, but it was just strictly uh, Mr. Henry. And uh, indicated to them that um, I guess they, 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 they respected the fact that I'm a retired peace officer in the state of California and have done investigations primarily in prison homicides where we have a captive audience, so to speak. And um, I, you know, I offered my expertise and what have you. And we finally um, convinced, or I finally convinced them that uh, uh, there was a that this case is solvable if they just follow the leads. But needless to say, a lot of uh, time passed, and um, we got uh, nowhere with uh, the uh, request to. Um, uh, you know, light a fire under their uh, investigators to 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 come to some reasonable conclusion as far as suspect or suspects are concerned. So, I wrote to um, America's Most Wanted. I had a contact there that uh, scheduled a, 
the show. Uh, the show, I believe, they said they had uh, uh, a, a lead. Somebody called in, and I, I don't know how accurate that information is because my notes are somewhat uh, scrambled, so to speak. I know that there was a Crime Wire segment where, uh, and I don't know if it was the Crime Wire segment or the America's Most Wanted. Maybe you can help me with this, Denny. Where uh, okay. a young lady named Cheryl Goody uh, called in and said, "I can identify the, um, the suspect, and uh, I know who killed Andy and Cheryl." And from there, pass that information on to um, Houston Police Department, and of course, it went nowhere with the. Uh, rape that uh, Garland had just talked about, where he did the the, uh, the suspect did not harm the victim, other than uh, physically, other than mentally, with the rape and terrorizing of the. There went nowhere, so I wrote to I called the Attorney General's office in uh, Texas. I asked to talk with the detective. Uh, I'm sorry, the investigator or attorney, assistant attorney general, whoever it was, because I didn't know the the administrative structure of their office, whoever it was that does homicide investigations uh, or oversight of homicide investigations. And I was connected with this gentleman, and uh, he says, I'm captain of the homicide unit. So I told him exactly what happened. That got nowhere. I wrote him a letter. Uh, he responded uh, with a phone call. <laughs> and he said, there's no such unit as the, uh, in the FBI office called homicide unit. I said, well, that's what I was told by you. And, and anyway, all of a sudden I started getting suspicious. Conspiracy to cover up, I believe, is the best phrase I could use. Um, and I, I started putting the dots together, and I thought, well, there's one dot that is, is way out there, and that's the Attorney General's office. How could Attorney General's office be in conspiracy to cover up a double homicide with the local um, police department, Houston PD? Well, then I looked at California, a uh, state comparable in size to uh, Texas, and I thought uh, it's possible. People know people in law enforcement. And therein, and maybe Garland can shed more light on this, but it's my belief that one of the prime suspects or person of interest is the son of a Houston PD um, officer or detective. I'm not quite sure. And uh, there's no follow-up done in, in, in any way, shape, or form by the Houston Police Department. Uh, they've ignored phone calls. Uh, they've literally cut me off from communicating with them. And... Um, 
what we've done is back in the um, uh, geez, I forget just exactly when it was, but we did a uh, oh, it was 2010. 2010, Citizens Against Homicide featured um, Cheryl and uh, Andy's uh, murder as the um, uh, profile for our newsletter. We re uh, um, did the um, the case on um, you know July 2016 issue of our of our newsletter, and of course it, this, this gets national distribution as well as uh, uh, saturated in California amongst our uh, district attorney's offices. But that's about it, you know, and and, and I'm frustrated as hell because. There's no doubt in my mind, case is solvable. It's just that the the cops have to, or the investigators have to, you know, think back and of their uh, days in the academy when they took the oath to serve and protect. And this is a this is a, an insult to the to the citizens against uh, to the citizens of Texas and more so the families of the victims, that they're not honoring their oath serving the death. Uh, you know, Gene, Gene, I, Gene, I'd like to thank you and Denny both because you were instrumental in getting it the featured show on America's Most Wanted in 2011. And the detective at that time had told me that uh, all he said, um, great national coverage. I, I understand, you know, you know, you want to do everything, of course. But all this is going to generate is a lot of leads for us to, to to follow up. He had told me about the sketch from the girl that was raped in June. He said it's generic. That looks like every. That looks like a million different people. That more or less composites didn't make any difference. Uh, uh, America's most wanted, you know, just caused them to have to run down leads. I just, it, it's frustrating. There's so much I'd like to say, but I can't. God, one day I will, though. I promise you that. Well, you know, Garland, you know, I, I was told basically the same thing, and I said, like hell, it's it's generic. It's 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 almost an identical match. And uh, I said, Gene, guys, yeah. I'm telling you. Uh, I, yeah. There's so much. I, 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 if, if something's got to happen, something's got to happen pretty quick. Because if it don't, well, yeah, listen here. Social well, media so will be much, the downfall of many people. Well, and they have so much uh, DNA, and you know, yes. I've even referred them. I've, I've referred them to uh, the forensic services unit at the University of North Texas, and um, they. They said, uh, we'll, we'll check them out. We'll check them out. Well, I didn't hear back from them. And I, I called back and I left a message because naturally the person that I was supposed to talk to was not in. And I said, Citizens Against Homicide will pay. We will pay for the, te- <clears throat> for the DNA testing. <clears throat> and this unit, <clears throat> excuse me. This unit in um, 
the University of, of North Texas <clears throat> has been instrumental in uh, solving of uh, a very large number of cases of homicide cases, and um, that went by the, by the wayside because I uh, uh, I guess I insulted them by saying. <laughs> Uh, you never, and I was speaking on as a victim advocate, not as a, um, uh, not in any other capacity. I was just speaking about, from a victim advocate's point of view. I said, you never, ever tell a family member that money is preventing an investigation because what you're doing is you're putting a value a monetary value on the life of an individual. And uh, that comes from the, the years, I, I have 30 plus years uh, with the uh, Department of Corrections. And that was coming from experience. We never ever put a value on a human life. And of course they didn't like that. And um, that's when I said, we will pay and of course, that went ignored. Well, Gene, I, I can add something. I, I had someone that I talked to whose father also was a police officer, but retired. Her brother was also a police officer. That both gave me, or not both, but her through him, they gave me some some things about the case that they had called and told him as soon as they saw the composite sketch. Well, we know who done that. Uh, but anyway, that's that's another story. But I just, I, Garland, uh, I just have to take a breath sometime. Sure. Uh, yeah, Gene, you, quick, you mentioned... I'd, I'd, like to, I'd like to, Jenny, I'd like to go back in, in, uh, about my comment about <clears throat> a conspiracy. Uh, it seems that every time some... Uh, uh, that I talk with a police agency or an investigative agency, we'll put it that a law enforcement agency. And I mentioned that uh, anything that might indicate that there was a, a police cover up or a handful of, not necessarily the entire police force or sheriff's force, but there's some kind of a conspiracy that involves law enforcement, we'll put it that way. I get the door slammed on my face. And I, I've written to Judge Jeannie uh, Bureau, something like that. She completely ignored the fact that uh, this case is solvable. Um, I've written to uh, Nancy Grace, nothing. Maybe if I did not include the fact that we suspect law enforcement cover-up, maybe they would have taken a second look at it. But I did, and I went ignored. So, you know, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist by any stretch of the imagination. I've been in law enforcement, like I said, for 30-plus years, retired now. But, uh, you know, I've always conveyed the message to our clients. The law enforcement's on our side. They're, they're, they're out for to solve a, a homicide because it would take somebody who would go 
take that uh, final step and kill somebody off the street. They, they don't want a killer on the street. So, uh, but I, uh, uh, I got mixed feelings about this. Uh, let, let me let me just comment quickly. Uh, I, I think it would be safe to say then we're all in agreement this case was and still is solvable. Uh, and, uh, Gina, you, you mentioned uh, Ms. Goody who, uh, who, who called in uh, or contacted uh, saying she knew who the killer killer was. And uh, that was that was through that that uh, broadcast we did in August of 2010. Uh, she she reached out to us, I, I believe, it was through the chat room uh, that night during that show, and uh, we got in touch with her from there. Uh, uh, conspiracy, possibly. I know Garland's somewhat limited because of the ongoing investigation and what he can or should say, uh, but from from. My knowledge of what's happened, uh, I tend to agree with Eugene that this something's not right here, uh, and uh, it, it's maddening. I, I obviously can't imagine what it's like for Garland, but I, just as a, a friend of Garland's and a, you know an interested party, it's maddening to me that this thing. Uh, Apparently, there's been very little progress in 28 years. It's uh, uh, with the technologies today and so forth. And uh, when I he- oh, so he- know about know about some of the steps that were or were not taken by the police in the uh, initial stages and so forth, it it it, it uh, well, I I don't want to go there. My I feel my blood pressure rising. Uh, Delilah, what, what are your thoughts? Well, I'm, you know, listening to everything that everyone has said, um, you know, obviously you must have a list of suspects, or is there just the one suspect that you have that you're hoping that this composite through DNA will will totally identify? Between us, Delilah, three. Three? three. You have three suspects? Three. Okay. Three. So yes. is there are there three <laughs> separate DNA samples? No. There's just one set this of is, DNA. The, the case that what 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 I what I wish I could say and I can't is okay. you know as I said the same person raped the girl two months before Cheryl and Andy were murdered and Cheryl was raped. Right. The same guy raped both of them, but yet the girl two months earlier she was raped but she was not harmed. Mm-hmm. And I have my own feelings and and. And suspicions about this same guy is the one that raped Cheryl, but I don't think well, he had it, anything to do with the killing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say obviously if, if you have the DNA match, he was definitely the one. But okay, now let me just back up just one second. In the in the original rape, the prior rape, were there charges filed? Did they follow through with that? Was he arrested? No. There was her rape was uh-huh. unsolved. Uh, didn't go any further. Maybe because she was a stripper at a club in Houston. Mm-hmm. And uh, okay. she gave them, uh, you know, the description. And then when they called her in, what, seventeen years later, and 
she gave a composite. You know, she was still, she even moved out of the country for um, about two or three years. Mm-hmm. But no, they never. So they she never wasn't cleared called in for an interview for 17 years, and did it take them that long to process her rape kit and get the DNA? That, well, when the first cold case squad took over in 2008, that is when they had matched. They just said, "Well, let's see if let's just check strip clubs since the father has been involved with them and." They did, and they found the girl had been raped in June, and they had a rape kit, so they went and got the rape kit, HPD homicide cold case from Harris County Sheriff's Department who had the, that rape kit from that girl, and they matched it, and it was a 100% match. This was 17 years later. Right. But no charges were ever filed in that case. No. But they know I who it is, the investigation right? never went anywhere. Uh, well, they have the DNA. They have not matched that DNA to a person, but my understanding now is they have familiar DNA that is being tested now, and I've, had, I've talked to people that know about it, and they say four months, I've listened to it on TV, that, 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 that the ex-cop out in California that was killing in 1970s, they got him mm-hmm. with familiar DNA. Exactly. Some people they can't they can't just go and say give us your DNA, but they've got the familiar DNA. Now that Correct. is what the cold case squad detective told me when I went down and talked to her, and she she said several other things to me that of course I can't say. But um, that is at the stage, and supposedly, and my 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 first wife Andy's mother. She calls me every time she hears something. Another cold case squad saw familiar DNA. Right. Another cold case squad, familiar DNA. Well, they've got familiar DNA. How long is it going to take you to be able to match it? Because you, or you've got to have, I know I've got three names and you've had them for a damn long time. Mm-hmm. And uh, one, one, one especially. The other two came later on, and believe it or not, She's the one that put me on to finding out who they were. There were three of them. But I think the one that did the rape in June and the one that raped Cheryl was not the killer. He was there, though. I think it was a situation that he had no idea what he was getting into. And uh, the next thing he knows is somebody saying, well, we can't leave him alive. But I don't think he bit off for that. Uh, because this gentleman's been superlative for the last 34 years. Mm-hmm. Well, so, in, okay. So well, let's say, say in, a, in an ideal world, years. right, in an ideal world, you get this composite back and, it, and you're able to identify at least one person. Um, yes. Or, or at least their, you know, their DNA is going to have to match somebody, right? I mean, I guess absolutely. So the persons, the three suspects, are they all still alive? Yes. And they're you know where they are, or police know where yes. they are. Okay. I don't know if police know where they are or not. They should. They've got they they know. And uh, um, I said three, and I know. Well, I knew one. Mm-hmm. And the cold case detective, uh, just in the conversation, gave me two other names. So I did my own research, and I know who they are now. Mm-hmm. I did. Okay. And they have to. And that so DNA everything matches one of them. 
at this point Familiar in, in DNA, this but this is this is this is where you get you can't you can't go and make somebody give you DNA. Now, if they get the familiar DNA, that person right has got the consent to give give his uh, the DNA. I mean, he he don't have to he don't have to do anything either. Right. That's all. That's, exactly. That's the do you know? Than, you know. We, listen. Do you know whether Texas or Houston or the county has? Uh, do they swab for DNA upon arrest? I know well, some listen, some jurisdictions do. All of that came in, I think, most prison systems, you do it anyway. But when you got arrested, really, up until maybe the 90s, maybe even the 2000s, they didn't swab you for DNA. Correct. The rapist, I really believe, and the detective looked at me and she said, well, suppose this person, or she asked me, she said, so we've got the DNA. We've got a familiar DNA. Uh, suppose this person has never been arrested. Suppose he's married, got kids, and has lived a perfect life. I said, then, well, he would have never been arrested, and you wouldn't have DNA on him. Right. So that's and, kind of um, where everything is hinging now. Everything is, in this yes. case, being soft is hinging on the results of the DNA that, that you have. Yes, ma'am. That was what Detective uh, Shorten had told me in January at uh, the homicide unit. Uh, and uh, Can you tell us what I mean, lab has January. This? I mean, today it's eight months. I mean, where is it at now? <laughs> What's going well, on? Well, that's I what mean, I was asking. Me because you... please don't turn into what the homicide and the last cold case squad did. They don't like me because... I am going to say what I feel, and you're going to have to prove me differently or tell me to shut up. You're not going to tell me to shut up. Can you tell us what lab is handling the... um... All I know, the detective told me, Delilah, that when she Mm -hmm. got funds appropriated to her cold case squad from HPD, that they had sent the DNA to a laboratory in Virginia. She didn't say what... What laboratory? I don't know how many they would have in Virginia, but she said they had sent it to Virginia. And also, this was, and that that lab had hit on a partial match, which is telling you familiar DNA. Now, from Mm -hmm. that 100% DNA sample, this same laboratory in Virginia has the equipment, the technology, to print out a composite of what that person who gave you that 100% DNA should look like at this time. And I have saw that on TV. My, my first wife called to tell me about this, and they took a person, the DNA, and the machine printed a composite that looked so much like that person, it was eerie. Technology is out of this world, and it can be used since no one else has done anything else to solve this case. And I'm praying to the good Lord above right now that that's what it is. And I can understand them not talking or, or getting in touch with me and let me know every step, but don't, 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 don't ignore me for six or seven months. Like it's like it has been, 
you know, the last time I talked to this detective was probably two and a half or three months ago. Cheryl's brother, Chris, and I went up and talked to the detective as well. She's went out and talked to, uh, to Cheryl's family, Barbara and Shane and all of them. All we want is closure. All we want are these animals off the street, and they can get them. They can get them. They've got the technology now, and they've already they've already told me the familiar DNA. They have a partial match. Well, that's as it stands. I'm waiting. Uh, let let me throw this out here for everybody. This individual, the rapist, uh, committed two rapes within a couple of months. Uh, I. Uh, it, it doesn't seem to me, it, it just seems like if he was, uh, you know, into that, that he would just suddenly quit, that he would just suddenly stop. So I was thinking, well, maybe he moved out of state. But uh, you would think that detectives in other states, you know, even if that was true, would would see similarities and so forth and check the national d- the database and do the comparisons. And And if this guy did strike again, somewhere else he'd have been discovered unless exactly if, the codis would have it yeah so the unless they're so backlogged yeah yeah the problem with that denny is that um uh the national database is inconsistent there's um um uh, the, i would think uh on a four to one four being the un- unsubmitted DNA uh, test results to one DNA submitted test result. Uh, so, so, so if you have 400, uh, I'm sorry, 500 um, uh, rape kits uh, available and only 100 are submitted, You've lost 400 possible uh, uh, positive results. Exactly. That, yeah, the, the national database needs um, definitely needs upgrading, uh, but that, that that's water for another show. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I, I was going. Oh, go ahead. I'm just going to say you hear constantly, you know, about. The departments, uh, the police agencies don't have the money to to afford to get the test done, uh, and some of these, you know, uh, some of these uh, specimens go untested for years. I mean, uh, oh yeah, you know that, that. Yeah, so obviously, like you said, Gene, if they're not tested, they're not in the system. Even if it, even if one of them would be a match, um, exactly. You, you get that the is exactly right. Not necessarily not tested not submitted to the national database. That's what I'm saying. So it's sitting somewhere okay. and it's never been put into the CODIS. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's it. The you end, know, I, something, that Gene had, something that Gene had said earlier, Denny, about uh, his group offering to pay for, for uh, blood tests, the DNA testing, the same thing happened uh, several years back, first cold case squad, and I had a name, and I wanted them to do a DNA test. And Gene knows about this incident. 
and they said, Garland, we do not have the money to give a DNA test and get the sample tested on every name we come across. I said, listen, this name, I'll pay for it. I had some money. I'll pay for it. His answer to me was, Garland, we cannot accept funds from any private sources. That's my son. What do you mean? I'm not a private source. That's my son that was murdered. But that was his answer to me. He couldn't accept my money to take a DNA test on this guy. That's that's stunning. Uh, you know, Danny, very very quickly, uh, that's how our organization uh, reacted to the very first case we, we uh, accepted. I, I wasn't a member, but Jane Alexander and Jan Miller, of course, were our co-founders. And um, there was a, a killing in uh, uh, southern Cal- uh, Santa Clara County here in California where the husband had a shotgun. They had a, uh, an argument. The wife grabbed the barrel and pulled it toward her. And his finger was on the trigger, and naturally they pulled, and shotgun went off and killed her. Cut a long story short, we paid. The organization, Citizens Against Homicide, paid to send a detective to, to I believe it was New Orleans, um, somewhere down in that, in that uh, uh, Gulf Coast uh, area, uh, for the detective to go down there, go through all the testing of that shotgun, and get a long story short, it revealed that he actually just killed his wife. There was no way that could have happened because of the length of the barrel. Uh, the, the forensic testing showed that she was uh, not that close to the uh, to the shotgun, and as a result, uh, he was convicted and sent to state prison. He died in prison. Huh. But we paid for it. So, you know, when I hear that, we, we can't accept private funds. That's a bunch of baloney. They can. They can do whatever they want. It's just like yes. the FBI constantly telling me, we can't get involved in the case unless we're invited into it. They were not invited into a lot of investigations that they did in um, Arizona when they uh, were after the sheriff there. I forget his name, Piero or uh, Piero, whatever. Arpaio. Joe Arpaio. Yeah. Yeah. They they did a lot of (laughs) non-invited investigations into him, as well as other politicians and, and they get involved when they want to get involved. And that's the same thing with the attorney generals in any state. They constantly that, tell us, well, we... What? That gene is a, is a sore spot with me from cases uh, I that I'm, I'm involved in, and I'm sure you too, that when you, when you have reason to believe, I'm not saying a gut feeling or a hunch, but actual proof or that questions can be raised as to the competency of the investigation, 
uh, whether it was by a town town police agency or a village or a county and so forth, and you believe the investigation was not adequately or aggressively pursued, uh, you, you go to the next next level up, for example, uh, if it's a county agency, then the, the state police or whatever state law enforcement calls themselves, uh, and you say, we'd like you to take a look at this, and up, uh, can't do it. We got to be invited in by the DA or the police agency, yes. otherwise we can't touch it. And yeah. that yes. is, yes. I'd, I'd like to see something where it's written that you can't do it. I know right. here that, in New York. I think that's, state, what, uh, that's what Gene happened. That's what happened to Gene. The same thing. The, what they have in Texas, they have the Texas Rangers. The Texas Rangers work under the governor. That's his police force. And they're the ones that get the high-profile crimes. And they're the ones here in Texas that more or less was telling Gene through the attorney general, well, you know, well, we have to go through these steps. They have the case. It's open, whatever. We're, we're not going to bother him with it. But Houston worry about it. That's what they told Gene. Yeah. That, that's that, that's incredible, and I think it's uh, it, it's really a shame. Uh, and I understand that one agency doesn't want to do the big brother thing and say we're coming in and taking over. But there are ways, I believe, it can be done – and shouldn't the bottom line here be solving crimes and justice? Uh, who gives a damn if you're the family or the survivors of these victims and then you, you think that you your loved one has not received an adequate investigation and everybody basically tells you to go to hell unless, unless the initially handling agency is willing to give it up or to at least ask for assistance, you're stuck. You can't, you can't do anything. That, that's, oh boy, I get... Very annoyed. Yes. You know, going, uh, going back on what you, on what you said, Denny, about uh, not a hunch, not a gut feeling, um, but absolute, uh, at least some semblance of truth and poor proof. Uh, two witnesses identified one person who made the statement, I want to kill somebody tonight. I'm going to a club called the Bayou Mama. And and this is what he said to them. They, and the next morning, the news comes out that this double homicide occurred, and there was no follow-up. They can't find this guy, they said. Uh, well, you know, yeah, I, I remember the, the deal, and it, it's again, uh, you know, defies explanation. Look, guys, uh, we're going to have to wrap it up here. We're out of time, but uh, Darlin and Jean, uh, I want to thank you so much for sharing what I consider an extremely heartbreaking story with us. And uh, Garland, if you know, when you're in a position, circumstances change a little bit, and you're, you're able to divulge a little bit more about what's uh, going on or what has gone on. We'd love to have you back on because this, this case needs to be out there. I, I appreciate that, Denny. And, and, you know, of course, I want to, to stay in touch with both you and Gene and Delilah. And you don't, you, you don't know how, how important it is to me that you all have been involved with this tragedy it's much more than a tragedy for the last uh, eight years and it did 
all you could to to try to help me and the family. And I'd like to say for me, my family, and Cheryl and her family, we appreciate it. All we want is closure. All we want is these animals off the street, and and it's going to happen. And uh, I'll be glad that that maybe when we have uh, another uh, discussion, we can be telling your audience, your listeners, uh, it's finally resolved. That will be my blessing. Well, that's that's my and my prayers also. Anyway, uh, thanks so much, guys, and hopefully we'll hear something positive in the very near future. Uh, our next regularly scheduled broadcast will be on September 18th at 11 a.m. Eastern when we'll update the case of the mysterious death of Army Sergeant Patrick Rust. Please join us then. Thank you, Danny. These days, people love keeping stats. Calories, shares, likes, steps. But what about a more important stat? There are over 300 fatalities a year due to impaired driving right here in South Carolina. 300 preventable deaths. This is Trooper Wilkes reminding you and your friends not to drink and drive. And if you see someone about to drive drunk, dial star 47. Working together, we can target zero traffic fatalities. In South Carolina, it's sober or slammer. Brought to you by the South Carolina Department of Public Safety. These days, people love keeping stats, calories, shares, likes, steps. But what about a more important stat? There are over 300 fatalities a year due to impaired driving right here in South Carolina. 300 preventable deaths. This is Trooper Wilkes reminding you and your friends not to drink and drive. And if you see someone about to drive drunk, dial star 47. Working together, we can target zero traffic fatalities. In South Carolina, it's sober or slammer. Brought to you by the South Carolina Department of Public Safety.